Listening to the Coffee Hour, I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We have a historical event to revisit today. It's coming up this Saturday. Looking forward to digging into some great history with one of our favorite historical theology professors in just a moment. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of the Coffee Hour. Find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live uncommon. Joining us today, Dr. Cameron McKenzie, who's professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, welcome back to the Coffee Hour. Well, thank you for having me. I always enjoy doing this with you folks. Oh, we always enjoy the great history lessons that you provide for us. And I just learned so much during these short snippets that we get to dig in and unpack some great history. So coming up this Saturday is the anniversary of the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. So set the scene for us. The presentation of the Augsburg Confession, I understand, happened at the Diet of Augsburg. What is the Diet of Augsburg? Help us understand, because I don't think it has anything to do with food. You're absolutely <laughs> correct. I mean, these days when you we use the word diet, like Diet of Augsburg, it was some kind of eating plan that emerged from the city. Well, that's not what it is. That word diet is a, an English term for a representative assembly often associated with the Middle Ages. It comes from a Latin term, dieta, which was used as the same way. So when you see it in a context of the sort that we're talking about, it simply means a representative assembly of a certain political entity. In this case, the political entity is the Holy Roman Empire. All through the Middle Ages, I should say through the late Middle Ages, countries had assemblies like this. England has a parliament, France has an estates general, and Germany, or at least the Holy Roman Empire, has a diet. And they're all kind of the same thing. They are representatives of the political elite in that particular space under the direction of some royal figure. In England, it would be a king. In France, it would be a king. And in the Holy Roman Empire, it is an emperor. So a diet meets when the emperor summons the representatives of the German nation. And we can talk a little bit about how those things were configured, but to a particular place where they are going to consider issues that the emperor himself considers important for the well-being of the nation. Mm -hmm. I always find it so interesting when we talk about the Reformation, how much of the Reformation had to deal with politics and the political landscape of the region and the Holy Roman Emperor and the princes and the electors and all of these people who were political figures, but it had it was tied into the religious landscape of Germany as well. It's just it's so interesting how those two things interact. So give us give us some of the historical background leading up to this Diet of Augsburg in 1530. What was happening like between 1518 and 1530? The political, religious background, the landscape that was leading up to this Diet. Sure. Right. Well. We mentioned 1518 just briefly because there had been a previous Diet of Augsburg. In fact, during the whole 16th century, there were several diets that were summoned by an emperor from Augsburg, and that was true in 1518 as well. Now, the Luther case was not discussed at that diet. Luther, however, uh, was summoned to Augsburg by the Pope's representative to the Diet. This was Cardinal Cajetan or Cayetanus, however you want to pronounce that. And 
Luther was interviewed and basically put on trial for his position. So that occurred coincidentally with that diet. However, it's the Diet of Worms in 1521, which is the first one where the Luther case and Luther himself were a part of the proceedings. And at the, everyone knows that was where Luther made his great confession of faith. I cannot and I will not recant. And then at the end of the diet, the emperor issued as imperial law a condemnation of Luther. So from that point, over the next decade or so, uh, Luther himself was an outlaw and it was illegal to teach, preach, or support the false teachings of Martin Luther that the papacy had formally condemned a few months before the Diet of Worms. So every time we have one of these assemblies for the German nation, whatever else is on the agenda, the Luther matter or the Reformation will be a part of their consideration. Right after the Diet of Worms, there were a couple of diets held in the city of Nuremberg, and there the Catholic majority tried to come up with measures so as to make everyone enforce the edict condemning Luther. That never worked because the Holy Roman Empire was not a strong central government. Real power lay in the hands of the territorial rulers. And if some of those territorial rulers, like the electors of Saxony, uh, wanted to protect Luther or embraced Luther's teachings, then the edict is not going to be enforced in those places. But nonetheless, through the 1520s, the emperor and his representatives were always trying to figure out how they could restore unity, religious unity to their empire, um, either by enforcing the Edict of Worms or figuring out something else that could kind of settle this religious strife that was stirring up the political situation within the empire. I might just mention that. In addition to the religious problem within the empire, the emperor, who was Charles V, had a number of other serious issues with which to deal. Charles V was not only the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, he was also the Duke of Burgundy, which made him the ruler of the Netherlands, those countries that today we think of as the Netherlands and Belgium. He was also the king of Spain. And Spain was not only developing an overseas empire during this period, but it was also a Mediterranean power. And one of the big problems that Charles had to deal with in terms of this far-flung European empire that he had was the Turk. The Muslim Turks had taken over the Holy Land, but not only that, they had also taken over Greece and the Balkan Peninsula. And they were a, an aggressive uh, expanding power and their expanse in the Mediterranean and along the Danube River was at the expense of so-called Christian rulers. And in some instances, territories and places in which the emperor had himself a personal interest. So that's a big concern of the emperor. He's also carries on a rivalry with the King of France. And there are lots of facets to that rivalry, but one of the places where the rivalry played out in terms of combat was Italy. So there are a series of wars between Charles V and the King of France over strife. They each have similar claims to Italian territories. So they're fighting in Italy during the 1520s. 
So Charles has a lot of things to worry about in addition to the religious strife of the empire. And if he could settle that religious controversy, either by, as they say, bringing everybody back into line under the Edict of Worms or figuring out some way to negotiate a kind of compromise, that would be really good for him in terms of his dealing with these other very serious issues, wars with France and wars with the Turks. So it's a complicated situation. In 1526, he holds a diet at Spire. And I should mention that Charles, because his empire is so big, isn't at any of the diets of the 1520s, he, except 1521, he's at Worms. And then 1530, he's at Augsburg. In between, you've got a couple of diets at Nuremberg, you have a couple of diets at Speyer, and Charles is not there. He's represented by his younger brother, Ferdinand. So the emperor is represented, but he's not there personally. Well, in 1526, the emperor's brother and the Catholic side decided to compromise over the Edict of Worms and to pass a resolution which basically said that each territorial ruler could enforce the Edict of Worms the way his conscience would direct, the way he would be willing to stand before God in judgment on account of his dealing with the Edict. For the Lutheran side, I mean, I'll use a term that they use more than Lutheran, the evangelical side, this was the go-ahead for them to implement Reformation. And so they had done that. Now, the reason why the imperial side was willing to permit that uh, was on account of basically, again, the Turks and, and the wars with France and Italy. Three years later, 1529, they have a second diet at Speyer. And at this diet, the emperor's brother, Ferdinand, and the Catholic majority pass a resolution taking away what they had granted in 1526. But 1526 had been a unanimous decision. 1529 was only a majority decision. And so the evangelical side protested the action of the 1529 diet. That's how that side came to be known as Protestants, a term that we still use today for those who break away from the Catholic Church. And in 1529, the protesters thought that probably the next step would be war if the, because the emperor, they thought, would be using military force against them. That didn't happen, but that's the kind of thinking and expectations that were going on in this build up to the Diet of Augsburg in 1530. Well, I have about a million more questions <laughs> and we'll get to probably two of them in the next few minutes here. <laughs> so much history. I can, apparently need to come take a class with you, Dr. McKenzie. We are learning about the presentation of the Augsburg Confession with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We have more to learn in just a moment right here on The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon, 
Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live Uncommon. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The presentation of the Augsburg Confession coming up this Saturday, the anniversary of the presentation of the Augsburg <laughs> Confession. And we're learning the history of it today with Dr. Cameron McKenzie, professor of historical theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. All right, so we're up to 1529 now. And I think we have a better understanding of what was going on politically and in the religious landscape at that time as well. So the quote, evangelicals, the Lutherans who were called evangelicals at that time, were really, I guess, trying to prepare for the next diet, the diet of 1530. Who makes up this group of evangelicals and what did they need to do in response to what happened at 1529? Yeah, good question. The evangelicals by 1529 are broken down into two factions. There are the Lutherans, and then there are the Swinglands, or the group that today we would call the Reformed. Uh, the evangelical movement has divided over the doctrine of the Lord's Supper as to whether the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are really in, with, and under the bread and wine, according to the word of Jesus, this is my body, this is my blood of the New Testament, or said the other side, do we have simply a symbolic representation of the body and blood of our Lord in the sacrament? That was the position of Swingley and his followers. Now, Swingley is a reformer in Zurich in Switzerland, is only kind of loosely attached to the empire. In theory, they're still a part of it, but they don't normally show up to diets or have that much to do with it. They, in fact, they are the hereditary enemies of the Habsburgs, and that's the dynasty of Charles V and so forth. But nonetheless, they're a part of the situation. More important in terms of internal imperial politics were those parts of Southwest Germany or empire that were embracing the Reformation, but were embracing it more in the Swinglian aspect than they were in the Lutheran aspect. So beginning about the middle of the decade, we begin to have a battle on paper. Nobody's shooting each other, but it's a real theological battle between Lutherans and Reformed within the empire. So that group that actually protested in 1529 had within the protesters both Reformed evangelicals and Lutheran evangelicals. Now, one of the political leaders of the empire, a very important fellow for the next couple of decades, was Philip of Hesse. Hesse, a significant German state in the empire. The Duke of Hesse was Philip. Oh, I think maybe his title was Margrave or something like that. But at any rate, he's the ruler of Hesse. And he realizes that if war breaks out, the evangelical side needs to be as united as possible. So he wants the theologians come together and reach an agreement on the Lord's Supper. By 1529, neither Luther nor Swingley thinks that this is really possible. 
but because Philip persuaded Luther's prince, Elector John of Saxony, that this meeting ought to take place and significant kind of political and theological pressure involved Swingley as well. They do meet in October of 1529 at Philip's castle in Marburg for a face-to-face meeting regarding the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And it is one of the great episodes in Reformation history as Luther and Swingley kind of go at it back and forth face to face. At one point, Swingley makes a reference to a Bible passage and he says, here's the passage that's going to break your neck. And Luther says, you're in Germany now, not Switzerland, and here necks are not broken so easily. Yeah, it's a great moment. And then at another point before the session starts, Luther has scribbled in a chalk on the table and he's covered it with a cloth and they're going back and forth. And at one point, Luther lifts the cloth and points to what he scribbled. And what he has scribbled is, this is my body. And he says, this is our passage. You have not taken it from us yet. Well, that those are kind of high points, but they show that the meeting did not solve the issue. Uh, it, it wasn't as bad maybe as it could have been because at the end, at Philip's request, Luther actually did write up a confession of faith in 15 articles and 14 of those articles were statements of agreement. And the 15th article, half of it was a statement of agreement about the Lord's Supper in which the two men both could agree that we reject transubstantiation, the sacrifice of the mass and so forth. But then at the end, it says, we do not yet agree about the presence of the body and blood of Jesus in the sacrament. So both sides actually sign these articles that are known as the Marburg Articles. And they have some significance in that they were one of the documents that the Lutherans, particularly Philip Melanchthon, would have taken along with them to Augsburg for the Diet of Augsburg in the summer of the very next year. So that's the kind of thing that's going on considerations of what kind of alliance we're going to have, what will be the nature of our opposition to the imperial side if they continue to insist on the Edict of Worms. Well, Mm -hmm. they're surprised when at the beginning of 1530, they get another, they get an invitation to another diet. And Charles speaks really very kind of moderately to them. He says, we want everybody to come. Everybody shall be free to express their own opinions regarding these matters. Nobody should be afraid. And then he suggests that then after we've had all of this free discussion, we'll be able to finally settle these religious matters. So instead of deciding to fight, it sounds like to the Lutheran, maybe he's willing to compromise. And so that then is the situation more or less that the Lutherans, the way the Lutherans are thinking when they finally decide to go to Augsburg in the early summer of 1530. So then, this is so great. So then what happens at the Diet of Augsburg? What goes down at this diet? What is so significant about this event at this point in our Reformation history? Yeah, for sure. On the basis of the emperor's invitation, each of the territories could have produced its own confession. The invitation is to each of the territories, not communally, but individually. And the Lutherans had some stuff already ready. They had, well, I won't go into all this stuff, but they'd written up some 
statements of faith that they brought with them. The elector's entourage left Wittenberg and Luther was with them. But Luther was an outlaw of the empire, so he could not go to Augsburg. I mean, it probably would have meant his arrest and just would have been a terrible situation. But he did go to the kind of the place in Saxony that was closest to Augsburg, and that was a place called Coburg. And that's where he spends the next few months while the rest of the delegation, including Melanchthon and the elector and their entourage, actually go all the way to Augsburg. Now, Coburg is only about 150 miles from Augsburg, but 150 miles in 1530 is a lot longer than it would be today. And so Luther does remain in contact with Augsburg through letters. And there was kind of a mail system in the empire at the time, but it's not as close as one would like. So he has an input into what's going on in Augsburg, but it's not a decisive input. All right. They get to Augsburg and the Catholics start showing up. And one of Luther's old foes, a guy by the name John Eck, he shows up with 404 articles demonstrating the heresy of the evangelicals. <laughs> and Melanchthon and the others realize that, well, that's something they're going to have to answer. And so what they bring along with them isn't going to be quite good enough. And moreover, they realize that if they can unite behind one statement, that will have more impact than if they are handing in several separate ones. So Melanchthon is charged with drafting a statement, and he approaches this task in order to do two things. One is positively to articulate Lutheran teaching in such a way that his opponents will know that it's biblical, that's first and foremost, but also the true teaching of the universal church or Catholic church from the beginning. So he's going to include references to the early church, its condemnations, and some of its teachers as a way of showing that Lutherans aren't doing anything new, but they're doing, saying, and teaching that which the Christian church has always said and taught. That's his first thing that he wants to do. And the second thing he needs to do is to defend and explain and defend the changes that the Lutherans had made in their churches. And that would mean things like permitting the clergy to marry, uh, permitting communion to be celebrated in both the consecrated bread and wine. That would also include a position on the power of bishops and why it isn't that why it was that they weren't just subscribing to everything that the bishop said. So the Augsburg Confession ends up with two parts. The, the first 21 articles are doctrine showing that Lutherans teach what the Bible teaches and what the true church has always taught. And then the second part is this list dealing with abuses that the Lutherans have corrected in their churches and why it is that they felt they had to make those corrections. And this was presented or written up in such a way that a group of evangelicals could sign on to it, not just the Saxons. So as a matter of fact, then we get, oh, I've got a list here so I don't goof this up because not all of these people are that famous. But when the Augsburg Confession is presented, it's done in the name of both princes and cities 
But very specifically, we have two imperial cities that sign on to this, Nuremberg and Reutlingen. And then we have seven, uh, well, we have one elector and six princes of the empire. And as a matter of fact, that's how the diet would have been organized, electors, princes, and cities. So the Augsburg Confession is, is signed by representatives of each of these three houses. It's, they get permission from the emperor to have this thing read. They choose Christian Bayer, who's the chancellor of Saxony, to read the confession because he has this great booming voice. Now, the Catholic side wanted to minimize the reading of this thing. So they had moved the proceedings into a smaller room where only fewer people could get in and hear this. But because it was a hot day in summer, they had to open the windows and Bayer's voice was so loud that people outside could actually hear what was being read. So it was kind of little political maneuvering back and forth on this thing. So, so that's what it was. And I, one thing I'd like to stress here, I realize I'm kind of doing a monologue, but you invited me, so this is what you get. <laughs> and that is that although theologians, particularly Melanchthon, wrote this, it was laymen. It's these territorial rulers and representatives of these two cities who present it. So it's not just a confession of the theologians, it's a confession of the church, the church as represented by these lay representatives there at the Diet of Augsburg. So it's a confession of the church and not just the clergy. And I think that's something that I really, truly appreciate about the Augsburg Confession and the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. Okay, we are really out of time, but with just about 30 seconds to a minute, what does it mean for us today having this Augsburg Confession, the presentation of the Augsburg Confession that we remember this week? Two things. One, it is still a true statement of the Christian religion, particularly from the perspective of the gospel that's at the heart of that confession. And that we always need to hold on to. The second thing is that those who went there give us a model for what it means to be a Christian. Because what they were doing was really defying significant authority that really could have cost them their titles, their lands, and everything else. Nonetheless, God emboldened them to say the right thing at the right time. Oh, man, remembering and uh, giving thanks to God for the presentation of the Augsburg Confession. That anniversary takes place this Saturday. Our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. McKenzie, thanks so much for, for this great lesson in history today. Thanks for being our guest. Thank you for inviting me. It was my privilege. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere.